Hello and welcome to the Aquarius Podcast. I'm your host, Randy Reed. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Awaza. And for today's sponsorship, I'm going to talk about Awaza in a little bit of a different light. And I hope that you guys will really come to appreciate them like I have. So, uh, you may or may not have heard that I will be going down to Peru with MT Amazon doing a collecting trip on the Amazon River. So, I am incredibly excited about that. And in part, that's because Awaza is helping out with that trip. So, what a fantastic sponsor helping me get down to the Amazon uh, to collect wild fish. I mean, you guys have heard me time and time again with various guests talk about how how much of a desire I have to get out there, whether it's the Amazon or like Southeast Asia, wherever it is. I want to go out and do as much wild collecting as I can. So for them to be able to help me out to go down on this trip is just super awesome of them. So I'm, I'm very stoked about this. I hope to uh, bring you guys back some fantastic interviews in the field with my collecting partners um, and the folks that are putting it on. Uh, Michael Barber will be there as well. So that's a, a past guest of the show. Um, and I hope you guys really enjoy that. And I will use my fledgling video skills to try to bring some YouTube content, some some actual visuals um, to the Aquarius Podcast YouTube page. So I hope you guys check that out as well. Yeah, so just super excited. And now, kind of on that note, moving into the uh, where I say, and now onto the interview. So this interview with Matt was fantastic. It was great. But actually, earlier in the day, I had gotten my yellow fever vaccine. And I think it kind of made me a little bit loopy. So if, uh, if I sound a little bit disjointed and a little bit more so than usual, um, kind of stuttering a little bit with some of my questions, that's kind of a hint that maybe it was that yellow fever vaccine kind of working its way through my system. But, uh, you know, you guys should really read up. Read up on that yellow fever vaccine. They actually make you sit for about a 30... Well, you, technically, you're supposed to stay... I got mine at Costco. Uh, you have to stay in Costco for 30 minutes before they let you leave. Uh, and I had to do about a 10-minute consultation with the pharmacist where I had to read you know, a six-page pamphlet on this vaccine and the potential side effects of it. It was pretty damn scary, I'll tell you that much. But uh, I'm sitting here right now about a week and a half, a week, week and a half after the, the vaccine, and I'm still alive. I didn't vomit any blood or anything like that. So good to go. Uh, super long-winded intro, guys. So without further ado, on to the interview. Today's date is Monday, July 29th, 2019. My guest today is Matt Wagner. Matt is a conservation resource biologist with the Mississippi Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Parks. In addition, Matt is also the curator of the ichthyology collection at the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. So Matt, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Randy. Yeah, thanks for coming on. You've got those are those are two pretty cool titles that you've got associated to your uh, to your name, Matt. Yeah, I uh, I'm basically responsible for surveying statewide in Mississippi um, for non-game fishes and dealing with seventy-five thousand jars of fish at the museum and adding to it continually. Seventy-five thousand <laughs> jars of fish. Yep. I um, and I've, I've checked the coordinates on every single one of them, so we have a complete distribution database that can go. If you ask me the distribution of any fish that's in a jar, I could give it to you in about two minutes. So so at one point or another, you have touched all 75,000 of those jars? No, but oh, okay. I've read the data for all 75,000. Oh, okay, okay. I was going sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've probably added about 12,000 myself in the past five years I've been in Mississippi. So silly question, do you have a preference on jar? Like is there a, like is it the ball wide mouth? Like is that the go-to jar or is there is there something that like a normal, you know, peon non-museum person can't even get a hold of this special jar? 
Okay, so the jars themselves aren't special. It, glass is glass, basically. There is some amber glass that prevents light from getting in, that prevents specimens from fading. Um, basically, the more the light that hits a specimen, the more bleached out it'll get through time. Um, the key is you just keep the lights off in the collection room when you're not in there. Um, but uh, basically, it's the lids that are important. Um, lid technology has improved in the past two decades. Um, historically, we used uh, ball jars that had like the metal hasp. You pull down to tighten them with a little uh, rubber like seal around the edge, and you can replace the rubber seal. Mm-hmm. Um, now we use plastic lids with uh, foam liners, um, and the foam does really well. The regular mason jars you'd go and buy for canning at like uh, uh, Walmart or whatever. Um, Basically, they will work, but they will rust through time with ethanol in them. So all the fish are in 70% ethanol long-term, and they will outlive everybody currently alive. Wow. So I bet nobody had any idea that when they tuned into this podcast, the first thing they were going to learn about was jar and lid technology for keeping (laughs) preserved specimens. Uh, That's all free, and that's all free. We haven't even started. So that's, that's just a bonus for all the listeners out there. So, so Matt, how did you get started? Like what, take me back to your earliest memories. What put you down this path to where you ended up in 2019, um, as a resource biologist with the state and being a curator of an ichthyology collection at a museum? Uh, well, it all, it all really started with fishing when I was little. I grew up on the Schuylkill river in Pennsylvania, which is a trip to the Susquehanna. Um, and I fished all the time for smallmouth bass, you know, common game fish. Um, I'd catch some other smaller fish, and I didn't know what they were, and it bothered me to the core. Um, so I went to college in central Pennsylvania, and through one of my vertebrate zoology classes, we went out for a fish, like three weeks of fish lab, and we used a backpack electrofishing unit. And when I went to a stream that I thought was a ditch with, you know, I would think one or two kinds of fish in there, we backpack shocked it, and you get 12 or 15 species in about five minutes. It blew my mind. And then I was like, okay, I want to do fish stuff. I switched from pre-med to just straight up biology um, and kept chasing any fish research stuff I could do from there on out. Um, that so, actually – go and, ahead, sorry. And, and no, no worries. And, and so this class was just like an elective that you were filling um, or just a general ed requirement in, in college? No, it was a, like a higher ed – or. Uh, uh, I can't remember the quite the right term for it, like a high level requirement for the biology major. Mm. Uh, but I was pre-med before that, and I said, I don't want to do medicine anymore. I straight up want to work with fish. Um, so I switched my major around a little bit to take a few more environmental type classes and hydrology stuff. And from there, I as soon as I was about to graduate, I started emailing professors that had written papers on darters. Um, until I found one that was willing to take me on as a grad student. Okay, and so going down this path, though, it wasn't like your, you know, your parents' community tank of tropical fish, you know, South American or African cichlids that initially hooked you. It was actually your own experiences fishing, and then this course in college with native fish that that really cemented you down this path. Oh yeah, I mean, I had my twenty long as a kid, tropical tank, you know, some tetras and some barbs and the classic placo that everybody's got. Um, that eventually got too big and then it actually died for some reason. Um, but I also, when I was out, I'd collect some small minnows and stuff, not knowing what they are when I was a little kid. And just like, oh, these are cool. I remember once I got onto a bullhead spawning ball and I had fifty bullhead in my twenty gallon long. They died like a week later from something. I don't know what because I was twelve years old. Um, but that was really cool to me. I was more interested in seeing the native fish you could catch and bring into your aquarium than what I could go buy at the store. Um, for some reason, just catching it and bringing it home has its own like uh, feel to it that's kind of more satisfying to me. So, so what, was your, what was your BS in again? 
just uh, biology. Biology. And then what was the, did you have a, uh, a certain specialization then? Uh, no, I just, at my school, you were allowed to make your own major. You had a lot of freedom with the upper levels as long as you took so many 400 level biology classes. Um, so I just took a lot more of the like vertebrate type classes, um, basically vertebrate zoology. What else did I take? Oh God, I'm blanking. It's no, been- no worries. So, 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 so you help me out here. So I'm going to try to unpack a thought of mine and, and, and to see if you can help me answer this. Um, somebody that wants to go into ichthyology, um, is it typically like a general study of, you know, you learn about uh, fish and how they relate to their, their geography, um, you know, understanding maybe hydrological principles, um, water chemistry, like is there, is it a general thing when you become an ichthyologist or do you go really far down the rabbit hole um, or is that something that like in postdoc or postgrad work that you go really deep down the, the rabbit hole and everything before that, you're just, you're getting this general education as an ichthyologist. So I've gotten this question a lot from like interns and stuff. And if I, was, I could go I was going to say like, who the, who's asking you this question? <laughs> <laughs> I, I actually had a kid come down from Wisconsin specifically to spend a, su- a month of his summer doing field work with me. Um, but basically there's, if, if I could go back and redo it, um, I might not end up where I am today, but somebody that knows this is where they want to end up, I would say go to a school that has a strong fish management program, um, fisheries management. Um, probably it's, typically more of a hook and bullet type of school, take all the fish management stuff, but also take all of the ecology-based classes you can, and your whether it's ornithology, herpetology, ichthyology, take all those other ones as well. Um, then when you really want to do non-game fish stuff, for your master's, you really want to find a program that's related to doing non-game research. So, Not saying as an undergrad, you can't do undergraduate research on non-game fish, but most kids going into their undergrad, this is a question you have to know in high school, don't think about, I want to do non-game fish research. Who's a professor at a university that works with non-game fish somewhere in the U.S. that will take me into their lab? So it's usually a few years too late to start as an undergrad unless you'd luck out and have a professor doing non-game fish research at the university you're at. And, and the reason why you're specifying terms like uh, bullet and hook and, and non-game versus game is that the money, the money is, the education is being propped up and the studies are being propped up where essentially the money is correct. And the money is in resource management for game fish like salmon and trout and um, bass and all these other fish that generate a lot of revenue from licenses and uh, just the whole sporting industry. Is that, is that all fair to say? Yeah, but the the cool thing is a lot of times, and you get this this weird mindset in university settings where it's either all the ichthyology, non-game fish people um, are ecologists and all the managers are are just managers, but you can take the same principles used for the condition of largemouth bass in a pond and apply it to mountain suckers in, you know, high mountains in South Dakota. There's no reason you can't do that if the concept's the same. You st- it's just a different study organism. Um, and if you're looking at health of a fish population, there's really no difference. It's just a different name and a different area it lives in. Mm. Was, was there any ever ever a thought of going down to um, study at one of those Brazilian universities that obviously with the Amazon in their in their backyard, um, or, or were you always just hooked into the natives? You know, no pun intended. Uh, I really did like the North American native fish, and as soon as I learned like our diversity was so high, I didn't like. I would still love to go down to the Amazon and do like a trip where, you know, you go collecting a bunch of streams and see some cool stuff. I'd love to have a guide with me that actually knew what the fish were so I could learn what they are. Um, but 
I was satisfied enough with the southeastern United States and basically everywhere in the U.S. that drains into the Mississippi that I didn't feel the need to look overseas. Um, there are some researchers that do some work overseas. Um, I, I guess technically, yeah, it's over the Gulf. It's still overseas to go to South America. Um, and I talked to them a little bit, but my interest really stuck with the North American natives. I just like the idea of conserving what's local to us. Mm-hmm. Um but there's some really cool work with uh, some taxonomists that describe some really cool cat, like the armored catfishes down in South America. Um, I know there's a lot of cool cichlid work that goes out there with descriptions and some other stuff, but that just wasn't quite my cup of tea. Mm. Yeah, and I mean, having you on, and I, and I told you a little bit about this in the pre-interview section, is that um, it, it's a little bit selfish for me to have you on because one, you know, as the host, I obviously get to pick the guests, but it's my own curiosity that I have with our native fishes um, and and wanting to bring people on that can help shed light for my own sake on fish that we have here natively in the United States. Uh, But broader though, I think that people that that are aquarists that keep tropical fish and probably have a ton of fish from South America, Asia, and Africa, um, you know, in in your base in the United States, which most of the listener base for this podcast is, you know, in our own backyards, depending on what state you are, we have some really cool, really unique, and, and sometimes very colorful and very beautiful fish um, in our own backyard. So in the Pacific Northwest, we have the Olympic mud minnow. Um, there's the rainbow darters, and I, I believe those are scattered throughout the Midwest. Um, yep. the, uh, the the whole genus of fungulus, uh, Julicii, that we talked about in the pre-interview section, I've mentioned that fish, um, you know, a dozen or so episodes back. Uh, there's really gorgeous and beautiful fish, and the sad thing is, is that, one, they're not really known about, but two, is that a lot of them are, are kind of in this, you know, near-threatened, threatened, threatened uh, kind of category because of, you know, uh, introduced uh, invasive species or um, you know, agricultural runoff or, um, you know, housing, just human encroachment, right? Um, and, and so really wanting to, wanting this audience to, you know, hear me talk to people about collecting fish in the Amazon or going to Africa and talking about the Rift Lakes, but also just what's in our own backyard and how cool that resource is. Um, I, I really, in, so I hosted the NANFA convention, North American Native Fish Association convention uh, this past year. And it was really cool to me, not just that people wanted to come and collect fish, but there were niche collectors. Um, there was one or two guys that specifically wanted to chase our North American fungalists. Um, and I think one of them was from California or something like that. He was out, it was out west somewhere, um, but that was what he was after. Um, all the other stuff was still cool to him, but like he's like, where can I go to get these? It's just, it's what I want. Um, (laughs) There's another guy who was after some of our really colorful minnows specifically. Um, And I mean, depending on what state you're in, some of the rigs are really liberal. Or There's some states like Tennessee where you really can't collect anything, even though they have the highest fish diversity in the U.S. Um, You said said Tennessee has the highest fish diversity? Yep, they're number one. Alabama's two. Wow, so I would immediately think Florida. So native, I don't Mm. know how many the the non-natives in Florida add, um, but when you look at the native fish diversity, Tennessee has the most species. At how many? Um, it's I think it's over 300. Wow. Um, but if you think about how Tennessee is, it's very long. It goes from the coastal plain and the Mississippi River drainage um, through the basically the Cumberland Plant Plateau. You get some other little geographic reasons in there regions, and then you also get into the Smokies. Um, so you're going from mountains all the way down to the coastal plain of the Mississippi, which, and it's got a ton of drainages just overlapping through the state. So you get a lot of endemic fishes that are only found in one river, um, just in Tennessee. Um, wow. And it's really, 
Yeah. That's awesome. Um, yeah, so I know that uh, just from Facebook posts that Lawrence Kent, who was a guest on this podcast, I think episode number three, actually, um, he was with you guys at, at the NANFA convention. It looked like he was having a pretty good time. Um, and I actually, I think I, I remember seeing pictures of him with you, and you you were giving a tour of the uh, museum collection, the ichthyology collection, if I don't recall cl- correctly. Yep, that should have been him. Um, we had a pretty good turnout there. Um, a lot of the guys were really amazed. Just, I mean, the shelves we have in the collection, they're like 20 feet tall, and they're on rollers. I can't remember, or com- compactor shelves, that's the name. Um, so, I mean, we have... 75,000 jars, but we're only at one third capacity of how many jars we can hold. So like seeing that's pretty cool, but also we have some big, I call them coffins. Um, they're basically big metal containers on wheels. Um, they're full of ethanol with our larger fish. Um, our biggest one is actually a donated cadaver bin from university of Mississippi medical center. Um, and that's where we have our really big fish. There's like a five foot alligator gar. There's the state record blue catfish, which weighs, I can't even, it's a lot. Um, (laughs) um, there's a barracuda in there. Um, and there's an oil fish, which is a deep sea fish. I don't know too much about marine fish. My knowledge stops as soon as I get past the salt wedge. Are they, Uh, are they segregated at all in that, in that sarcophagus or whatever that, that container is, or are they just all in the same fluid together? They're in the same fluid together, but they're individually tagged. Mm. Um, so each one has a number somehow like through its lip or, a, you know, maybe we'll put it in the mouth and out the opercle and it, there's just a number and a string. And then the, there's a little tag on the side or a little bag on the side that has all the actual information for each individual specimen. But that coffin one only has like nine fish in it. Mm. Um, but they're big fish. They're, yeah. I mean, <laughs> another one of them is like a four and a half foot Gulf sturgeon that somebody found dead on a beach someday. Um, and that actually is a really cool specimen. Um, we had a parasitologist come to the museum to extract the gut contents of the sturgeon. Well, it's curled in like a coil, um, and the rigor mortis is really strong, and they have tough skin to begin with. It took three fully grown adult men to hold open its its stomach after we created a cut um, long enough for the parasitologist to go up to his elbow in there to get the entire esophagus and digestive tract out so he could go through it and look for parasites. Um, So, yeah, there's there's cool stuff you don't think of when people preserve specimens. Parasitologists love curators um, because we keep everything. Wow, a, par- a parasitologist. I have not, I have not heard of that before. And but it, as anything in science, it's like no wonder there. Well, of course, there's a special somebody that specializes yeah. in that kind of micro niche in the, you know in the science space. Yeah, but the Gulf sturgeon parasitologists are extra cool because they're looking at an anadromous species. So the parasites not only have to you know get in this large fish, but they have to deal with saltwater and freshwater conditions. Um, so it's kind of weird to think about what kind of parasites can handle, you know, different osmotic areas. And I don't know how that works with the digestive tract of a sturgeon, um, but just kind of a, a weird niche. So, so say that word again, because I can never pronounce it, but I know what it is. And we'll, we'll break that down just in like one sentence real quick for everybody. Um, niche. No, 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 no. Anamadronomous. Cause I, I oh, anadromous. Yeah, an- anadromous. anadromous. I always butcher that. So it's basically a fish that has a, has life cycles in both freshwater and saltwater. Yep. Yeah. So your um, your salmon's trout's um, sturgeon. Yep. Um, the sturgeon are kind of cool. So off the coast of Mississippi, we've got barrier islands, um, just small islands. You know, on the on the Gulf side, there's wave action, beautiful Gulf. On the inshore side, it's almost like a flat, like a mud flat kind of. Um, 
But around the barrier islands, um, there's a lot of grass beds, and the sturgeon go out and feed on those around the islands um, during the year. Then in the spring, they migrate back into the rivers to uh, spawn. So it's just kind of cool to think about them moving not too far off in the ocean, just like 10, 15 miles offshore, feeding around islands and coming back to fresh water. Yeah, I actually had the opportunity to go fishing in the Columbia, I believe it was, for sturgeon. I And I think, it, I can't I can't remember if it was green or white sturgeon, but... Uh, it was, you know, very, very limited window. It was only, it was only catch and release. Um, and this sturgeon was, I mean, it was massive. It was, a 40, <laughs> I mean, 45 minute, uh, 45 to an hour fight between uh, myself, my uncle, and, uh, and and one of our other friends, or actually two other family friends, kind of taking turns with the pole. And this thing was just an absolute beast. And the, and the fish that we used, um, I don't shad or whatever kind of fish it was, but it was basically like the whole fish with the hook in it <laughs> is what we use as bait. And, and the sturgeon was just an absolutely incredible beast. Um, you know, once we caught our one, it's okay. Well, at least for me personally, it was okay. We caught this thing. It was, it was a bit of a hellish kind of fight for the fish. You know, obviously we <laughs> took turns and then I wanted to go just get walleye or, or bass or something like that. Cause especially if we're not even actually going to take it out, it's, we're going to take this thing. We're going to exhaust the crap out of it and then we're going to let it go back. So, you know, I felt like, yeah, I, I don't want to, you know, make it sound so trivial, but to say that I can check the box, I caught a massive sturgeon. All right, now let's actually go get some game fish that we can, you know, pull in with a minimal fight and, and, and just kind of have fun <laughs> for the rest of the day. Yeah. Did you guys tag that sturgeon? Just out of curiosity, I know out there's some programs where the guides will actually tag the sturgeon or check for pit tags in them. He might have checked, but no, there were, we, we definitely did not tag it. And if he checked it, uh, it was very, very quickly. Now, in my defense, I did not book this guy. I'm pretty sure he was legit. I didn't see any licenses on him, but I mean, he had like the official boat and all that good stuff, and we're using like a state launch and all that. But no, I don't. I don't recall him actually even mentioning anything about the uh, about that. The one funny thing though was that he he. I think he, the only thing he ate over those two days was kippers. So this dude, this dude, like he's in the back of the, uh, the Columbia river kind of sled where it's, you know, it's, it's just a completely open boat. Uh, he's at the back with the, uh, the transom steer, like it, and it's like a transom steer on like a 200 horsepower mercury. So this thing is a beast, but this guy, like for his lunch though, I think all he ate was three or four kippers each day. He just peeled it back and kippers is that very salty, you know, f- yeah. um, preserved fish for people that don't know. And this dude like just used his fingers, reached in there after touching bait and all his other fish and grime and stuff stuff and he's just like putting the putting the the, the kippers in his mouth and, and, and going to town so that was between catching the sturgeon and that those are like the two most memorable parts of that fishing trip <laughs> i can relate to that i actually keep king oscar anchovies and olive oil in my boat at all times they don't seem to really go bad um and i'll just wash my hands in the river real quick after we're doing stuff and just start eating them with my fingers oh nice uh- <laughs> <laughs> good times all right, Matt. So let's let's talk about uh, backpack electrofishing. What what is that? Okay, uh, if, the best way to liken it to something is it kind of looks like a Ghostbusters pack. Um, you've got an anode and a cathode, so you can complete a current. Um, there's one part that's called a rat tail. It's literally like a I don't know, like a five or six millimeter thick uh, wire. It's more like a cable that hangs out and that trails behind you. Then you've got like a six foot pole with a ring on the end. Um, so you got the tail behind you, pull with a ring on the end, and there's a magnetic button on the pole you can press down um, that'll start the current. Um, and basically, you'll shock anything between the tail and the ring and a little bit outside of that. Um, your goal with shocking is not to kill the fish. It's just to stun them. Um, it doesn't stun them for very long, and some fish are really susceptible to being stunned, and some are not susceptible at all. Um, just depends on their physiology. Um 
specifically uh, a lot of the stuff you do in really small streams. Um, a lot of people like to walk upstream when they're shocking, and you just have a dip net in your left hand, uh, the the pole with the um, hoop on it that shocks in your right hand. And as you walk upstream, you shock, and when a fish gets shocked in current, it will literally just kind of turn on its belly for a second and start rolling downstream, so you just net it up as it's coming towards you. Um, there's some other shock methods. Uh, there's one actually specifically for lamprey, um, and they use a certain setting that kind of pulses it, the electricity in a certain way that causes lamprey to come out of the sediment. Um, that's really fun to do. Um, there's other settings you can use uh, specifically for catfish. Um, there's other settings that you, I'm trying to think of other stuff. Um, there's actually a specific setting for flathead catfish, um, and you can do this with the backpack shockers, but they typically do this more often with electrofishing boats um, because flatheads are not in small streams as often that it's easy to shock them. But if you shock a flathead with low frequency, um, it'll actually come to the top of the water and just circle for a few seconds. Um, once it snaps out of it, it'll dive back down, but you can pull up you know, a 50 or 60-pound flathead from 50 feet away with an electrofishing boat using the right frequency and then... Typically with that, you'll have a second boat that's called a chase boat, and they'll literally just be a guy with a tiller steer and another guy on the front, and they'll gun it to try and get to that fish before it snaps out of it and dives back down. Um, so backpack electrofishing is super useful, though. In streams where you've thought, you know, oh, there's only a few species in there, I don't see anything, once you shock over some habitat, you know, whether that habitat is woody debris, rocks, an undercut bank with some grass, you will start seeing species pop out that you never thought existed. Um, it pulls darters out, you know, super colorful little benthic guys. Um, there is an issue with shocking darters. They don't float at all. They just kind of roll because they don't have a swim bladder. Um, mad toms are super susceptible to getting electrocuted, our small catfishes. Um, part of that, I think, has to do with their sensory barbels and not having scales. Um, trying to think what else really helps with. So, so, um, so real quick, before we go any farther down that path, you haven't preemptively addressed my newbie 101 question with an electro electrifying electrified back or backpack in the water so so are you getting like this tingling sensation the, the entire time like obviously it's safe for humans like what precautions are you taking or is it just inherently built into you know how it's behaving in the water and the fact that you're wearing rubber boots and waders and all that stuff Okay, um, so if you're wearing breathable waders, the kind that most trout fishermen will wear, and you're sweating really bad, it is going to shock you through your waders. Oh. It'll feel like a weird tingle, like one of those uh, the machines they use on your muscles to make them pulse. Yeah, yeah. Um, you'll dance. Yeah, you'll dance a little <laughs> bit. Um, and uh, if you're wearing PVC waders, though, I mean, you see a lot of those like Cabela's and Bass Pro, and they all have their own brands. You Google PVC waders, you will not get shocked through those. Um, the plasticky rubber lining inside of those is electricity proof. Um, neoprene, you won't get shocked. You won't feel anything. Problem is, we live in Mississippi where it's super hot. Yeah. So if you have breathable waders, you're a little more cool, but you're going to get shocked a little. You wear the PVC waders, you sweat a decent amount, but you don't get shocked at all. We just don't wear neoprene in Mississippi, even in the winter. Um, so some people just kind of take your choice. If you can deal with, you shouldn't wear the breathables if you're going to get shocked from a safety standpoint. Um, but you don't touch the water while the shocker's on. It makes the most obnoxious beeping sound in the world while it's actually going. Um, and it's also got what's called a dead man switch. Um, basically, if you tilt too far in either forwards or backwards, um, the shocker will turn off. Um, the only way to get caught in a continuous loop um, would be to actually sit flat on your butt um, with your finger caught on the, um, the magnetic 
uh, button that starts it and somehow not have the the bottom part of the shocker submerged because they all have a submersion detector and they will not turn on with a submersion detector. So it's it's nearly impossible to like shock yourself and get stuck in a shock loop. Um, <laughs> so so this is so this is a legit like this could jack somebody up if like the if the stars align right. Well, like they if you have a pacemaker, you're not supposed to get electrocuted at all. Um, but the the power on this, if you've ever touched an electric fence, not that anybody should, do not ever do that. But some people have or got a really bad static shock. That's what it's going to feel like. Your hands are going to go numb for a minute or two. Um, and then you're going to be okay to go. Um, but there is potentially, you know, with people with pacemakers to stop the pacemaker and kill them. But so, um, so let's play out a scenario though, that you're out there, you've, you know, you've put in a long day on a hot, hot river, uh, of using this thing. Um, you're exhausted and then the right condition happens and this thing kind of, you know, shocks you and then you whack your head on a rock, right? Like, I mean, there's some, there's some potential things that could kind of cascade to, to turn this into a, you know, into a, a bad situation. Yeah, there, there definitely are, especially since it weighs about 50 to 60 pounds. Oh, wow. Um, so you're wearing waders, you're carrying a 50-pound backpack, and honestly, if you went into a four- or five-foot deep pool and your waders filled with water and you had the backpack on you, you're very high potential for drowning. Um, it's not smart to take it in shock alone. Um, I know some people do that in very small streams. Um, it's still just a safety precaution. You should always have somebody with you. Um some companies recommend you wear rubber gloves while shocking. Most people do not wear the rubber gloves. Um, it hurts their ability to handle things because it reduces your dexterity. Um, but I've never heard of anybody dying with a shocker, knock on wood. Um, but it's just something to be conscious of. It is a tool. It is not a toy, I guess. Um, so, so, yeah. So maybe I'll let your uh, chuckle kind of answer this question. Have, have there ever been any shenanigans with the shocker and, and fellow staff members? Uh, not really. At least, I mean, I know I've seen people do this before. Um, if you're not sure if the shocker is working or not, because sometimes you're in a stream where you, there just might not be any fish in that area and you can't tell if the backpack shocker is working and what you're not supposed to do. And it literally says it on every backpack shocker instruction manual. Do not test if like, don't put your hand in the water to see if it's working. I've seen many people do this, not since <laughs> I've awesome. here in Mississippi, but like, like, ah, yep, it's working. We're good. Um, <laughs> Um, that's great but yeah i mean it, it does feel like a good tingle and i've been shocked before by accident um what in the field we have a you know the safety word or safe word is off you shout off they stop shocking doesn't matter what the situation is um and sometimes you know you're, you're walking along you shock a fish it's caught in between two little rocks or in a root or something you shout off so the person can reach in there with their hand and grab the fish mm. because they can't get it with their dip net or something um but uh yeah I'm I'm way more hesitant around boat shockers because they're running a full size generator and a shock from one of those could stop your heart. Oh wow! This even without a pacemaker, the just the regular shocker, the backpacks probably wouldn't. I really just liken it to like you running around with your sock feet on for ten minutes on a rug and then going to your buddy and just tapping or poking him so he gets shocked bad. Gotcha. Um, and and are these things kind of globally in the ichthyology, you know, actually out there, boots on the ground research? Um, is this something that you would see used in Europe and Asia by uh, by other, you know, kind of resource um, scientists? You know, I've never talked to a foreign ichthyologist. Um, I've talked to Canadians, and I don't consider them foreign because they're still part of North America. <laughs> um, and I know there's Canadians that use um, shockers. There's actually one company that's based in Canada um, but I really don't know the use outside of, uh, North America. I know some, some ichthyologists that do work outside of North America that bring their shockers with them when they go. 
Um, but I really can't vouch for people outside of the States. Hmm. Um, it, there are some places you can't use the backpack shocker well due to conductivity and streams. Um, if it's if the conductivity is not right, you're just not going to be able to shock the fish. Um, so, so is that so, like if there's the if the micro siemens are too high in the water, that kind of thing? Yeah, I can't remember. It's, it's, like, a, it's like a water hardness, right? Or total, uh, total dissolved solid? Uh, there's a lot of things that play into it because when you have total dissolved solids, the amount, the little bits of metal throughout the water will conduct stuff mm. more. Um, so there's some other things that go into it too. Um, I know how to set the shocker in my Mississippi streams. There is a quick setup option. Um, a, a lot of people will literally just turn it on and keep cranking up the vaults until they start rolling fish. Oh, that's geez. not, that's not the proper way to do that. You can have electro where you shock them so hard that they thrash their muscles and sever their vertebra. Oh, wow. Um, so there, there is a danger to doing that. And, you know, if you're doing surveys for threatened and endangered fishes, what you don't want to do is cause them to sever their vertebra. Um, so, uh, yeah, there's there's some things. You, it, it's not something that's just, you know, okay, here you go. Um, you kind of should get trained on it by somebody that knows what they're doing or at least somebody that knows what they're doing in the, the, the region you're working in. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it is standard all throughout the United States. Um, I think there's at least four or five companies that make them. Um, Smithroot is one huge company. They make electro fishing boats too. There's one called Haltech. I think that one's the Canadian one. There's Midwest. Um, and I mean, they're, they're expensive machines though. They cost anywhere from five to 10 grand. Um, and there's even fancier ones than that. Um, but most people, a a lot of people like Smithroot because they've been around for a long time. Um, but the the cost difference between a Smith root at like ten to twelve grand or something like that versus some of these other companies that can put them out for five grand really does make a difference, especially if you're a grad student on a small grant. Um, but uh, yeah, I like my Smith root. It has lithium ion batteries. It used to have lead acid batteries that weighed eighteen pounds. The new ones weigh like nine pounds. I am very happy carrying eight less pounds when I have it on for three hours straight hiking in a stream in deep sand. Um, Wow. Yeah. I mean, a- accuracy and effectivity aside, I would almost just associate with the the more storied, the the longer tenured brand with hopefully just being a safer product, especially if you're yeah. be strapping batteries and, and, you know, putting a current into the water. Like I want to put my money on the thing that's <laughs> going to make sure that I go home and see my family at the end of the day. You know, that, that, that just seems like kind of inherently something I would, I would gravitate towards. So, yeah. so, so and I mean, yeah. the unit I'm using is over 15 years old made by Smithroot and it works great. Um, so I mean, I'm not, I'm not paid by Smithroot. I get nothing from them, (laughs) Um, but like, I like my unit. I trust it. I can use it and I know how to change the settings. The settings to change them are a little different on every unit. I don't know. It's like an Xbox or a PS4. You just got to learn the different ways to mess with it until it does what you want. Um, but yeah, um, and you can use different brand shockers together in a stream. Like sometimes we'll do surveys where we'll have two or three guys wide in a stream, each with a shocker on their back. Um, so we're covering the whole stream because you really don't have that large of an area you cover. Um, there's also a, there was one, one project they've done where we had a, a very unique shocking methodology. Um, in South Dakota, there's a hot spring in the Southern end of the state, a river that runs for like seven miles. And there are Jack Dempsey's in that stream. Somebody released their aquarium fish into the stream and it runs, the stream runs somewhere between 72 and like 78 degrees year round, even when it's like negative 15 out. Um, and the cichlids took over. There are Jack Dempsey's everywhere. 
Um, for some reason, we'd have one guy going upstream along the cattails on the edge, and the other guy would come from the upstream direction downwards, so kind of like a pincer movement, and it would work really well on them. Um, I don't know exactly why they didn't get shocked too easily with our regular walking upstream method. It might have been they hid better in the cattails or they could feel the current from a distance coming. Um, but when you pincer them, basically when the two electric fields meet, they can't go anywhere and they just start rolling. So to take a step back, you just said that there's Jack Dempsey's year-round in South Dakota. Oh, yeah. That you want some- is awesome in such a terrible way. Yeah, if you want Jack Dempsey's uh, anywhere from you know two inches to the four to five inch range, go to the Fall River in Hot Springs, South Dakota. The f- anywhere <laughs> above the waterfall, you you cast into a pool or you go fishing in the pool, you're gonna get them. What, um, there what is are, a guy. What are they biting? What are they biting on? Uh, I didn't fish for them myself. Um, one of the rough fish guys that was doing a tour to whatever the Midwest and uh, going out west. Um, he went for him. I think he was literally just using crawlers. Like they're pretty voracious. Um, so I mean, like I'm talking in a, you know, a 30 meter stretch. Sometimes we catch 50 to 60 of them at at the four inch range. All right. So so people can probably hear me clicking away on my keyboard, but I'm pulling up fall river, South Dakota. So you're telling me this is almost a guaranteed thing that if somebody were to go out year round or probably not in the winter time, you wouldn't want to go out there. But nonetheless, if you go out there to hot spring, South Dakota in a 30 meter stretch, is it almost guaranteed to see Jack Dempsey's? Oh yeah. That's Um, so awesome. You can sane them up. You can fish for them. Um, when I so we did some work on these. We actually did a diet study to see if they were eating any of the native fish. We didn't find a. I think we found scales of one of a, a minnow in them because the scales were cycloid, not tenoid, the circular kind. Um, but we found tons of other Jack Dempsey scales in their guts. So we think they're just territorial and fighting with each other. Um, so we didn't see they were eating any of the natives, but we think they're definitely displacing them because they're so dense. Um, but yeah, I mean, this, this stream is, we, we caught a goldfish or two in there. Almost anything could live in that stream if it's a tropical fish because it's so warm year round. Um, but as soon as you get below the waterfall at the base of it, like you have ice flows going by on the main stem river. Tropical fish are not going to survive well out of that. Okay. So, um, so, so I'm looking at hot springs, <laughs> South Dakota right now. So walk me through the Google maps here. Um, I see, what is this? Angostura reservoir. Is it, is it? in that area is that where the the dam is uh i'd have to pull it up myself it's in fall river um fall river is the name of the town i think actually okay so i pulled up fall river county south dakota is what came up but this is just this is just wild and now i'm trying to like race my mind to think of what kind of work trip if any would i ever be in south dakota (laughs) on in the future i can't think of a single one but this is just like this is so fascinating that there's jack dempsey's just thriving (laughs) In South Dakota. Yeah, there's actually a... So there's a little, like, water park there called Evans Plunge. Um, They have a decent-sized parking lot, and right downstream of there is a... Just Google Evans Plunge Mineral Springs on Google. Um, If you jumped in the river right there at that place, you'd easily catch a bunch of Jack Dempsey's. Um, All right, Evans Run Mineral Springs. Evans Plunge. Yeah, 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 Evans Plunge, okay. Uh, I see Hot Brook Canyon. Yep. Yeah, we're doing this. We're doing this live. This is great for an audio podcast. I don't care. I'm so interested right now. All right, so do I go I go north of the uh, of the parking lot? Uh, it's literally just walk out the parking lot into the stream. Just so yeah, just a little bit. It's 20 feet. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, that is but, so uh, cool. So 
the we don't find them downstream. There's a church with uh, by some waterfalls, and the waterfalls are really pretty to go see. Um, and basically, I think that's the intersection of Highway 79. Before you hit that, there's some Fall River Falls. Um, we didn't find any of them below there when we did the survey. Um, so we think they just they're in this small area, this one stream that can persist in year round. Um, and the falls are like a change in elevation by like 40 or 50 feet. Um, so they're probably not if they would get below the falls, they're probably not getting back up there. Um, okay. Okay. Yeah. So that's a, that's a pretty decent stretch from the from the Fall River Falls up to that Evan Evans um, plunge. Yeah, Evans plunge. Yeah. I bet they had no idea that a tropical fish podcast was going to be saying their name right now. That's just free advertising. Hey, if you're in the area, listeners, go to Evans Plunge, Mineral Springs, and tell them that Randy from the Aquarius Podcast sent you. Tell them, yeah, tell tell them we sent you. <laughs> Matt, Matt and Randy sent you. You'll get you'll get a zero percent discount, but they maybe will get a kick out of it. Good times. All right, so so enough about those Jack Dempsey's, which is totally relevant though, because this is a, a tropical fish podcast. So uh, to talk more about the the collecting methods or the the surveying sampling methods, so one of the papers that you had sent me talked about um, the research that you ha- you guys had done to kind of understand when researchers take different sampling methodologies, like using a backpack electrofishing, you know, uh, device or seining that you can get, you know, it, it may not be painting the, the correct picture for that body of water. Right. Or for that species. Um, so we, I do a lot of work with mad Tom. They're small diminutive venomous catfishes that are, some of them are monochromatic and some of them have a real strong bicolor pattern, um, typically brown black with saddles. Um, and those patterns are somewhat related to their habitat use. Um, and different gears are definitely going to work better in different habitats. Um, we did this survey in North Mississippi, 13 sites, um, at each site as as possible as to get as many replicates as we could. Um, we did five 100 meter replicates with four different gears. Um, just to be clear, that's 2000 meters of stream you need to sample in a day. Um, that's a mile and a quarter. Um, so it was a lot of work. Um, we tried minnow traps, just plain old dip netting. You know, a lot of our, our native fish enthusiasts just like to go to a stream with a dip net and just jab up into things and try and catch what they can. Um, the minnow traps were baited just with dog food. Um, and we tried backpacked electrofishing um, and the seine. Um, we didn't do any combinations of seine and backpack electrofishing or anything because I couldn't walk anymore in a day. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we've talked about going back and comparing shocking to seining to the combination of the two um, for Mad Tom's. But what we really found was that for some species um, that like slightly shallower habitat, the backpack electrofishing is just way more effective. Um, and it's also more effective on smaller individuals. Um, uh, for the, there's one species, though, piebald mad tom. It's the largest of our mad toms we have here. Um, it was more susceptible to seining. And part of this is that that species likes deeper water that's swift. Um, so sometimes your backpack shocker limitation is how tall your guy is up to like two inches below his butt because that's where the shocker sits. So you can only get into, I guess I'm five foot nine, so probably about two to three feet of water at most um, and still be somewhat effective. And you have to be able to see what you're netting with the backpack shocker versus with a seine, you're just literally saying, hey, there's a good root wad, set it behind it, 
kick it out really well and pull up the net. So, I mean, with a saying, I can be up to my shoulders in water and still collect. Um, so we really found that the the species we were looking for, the piebald mad tom, which is the one that was federally petitioned for being listed, um, we needed to survey for with sayings. Um, and so when we go back, we know, hey, don't bother with minnow traps. Don't bother with just a dip net. Don't bother with your backpack shocker. Just grab your seine. And if you're going to do 2,000 meters, just do the whole thing with the seine. Um, we have gone back to one of my sites since, and actually in one day we collected nine. Um, that might sound unimpressive to some people, but before that day, I had only seen 13 of that species in like 50 days of surveying for it. Wow. So, yeah. Yeah, no, and I mean, in, in these mad toms, they are really cool fish. Um, are they, I mean, how similar are they to like the woodcat species that you find in South America? Uh, or I guess, how familiar are you with the, with woodcats? Uh, I know a little bit about them from when I took ichthyology, mm-hmm. but I, I don't know if they occupy all the same niches ecologically, if they're hanging out in the same areas. Like uh, one of our mad toms, the brindled mad tom, it's one of the patterned ones. It really likes slackwater areas with leaves. Mm. Like if you find uh, like just downstream of a sandbar, a little leaf pack that's just hanging out there and you and you know you're in a, in a stream that these, these brindled mad toms exist and you haul a seine through there – you're going to probably pull up 10 or 12 after you pick through all the leaves. Um, so it's, I don't know, it just it depends on the niche that the Mad Tom occupies because they, I mean, we have five different Mad Toms in these streams, um, actually potential for six, I think, um, and they all coexist. So they had to all evolve to a different niche to basically be able to coexist with each other. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, and I, guess, I guess what I'm trying to do is just race to something that I know that's familiar to me in another <laughs> species, just so I can better understand it. Like I'm trying to understand is this kind of a cross between a woodcat and a corydora? Like how do I how do I kind of put some uh, a personality around this this native fish that we have that looks really cool? I mean, I guess from from the Google images, they they do look like woodcats, um, but more obviously much more so than like an armored catfish like a corydora. Um, I mean, really cool, yeah. really cool patterning. I, I will say from a, an Aquarius standpoint, um, our brindles tend to display well. Um, some of our mad, a lot of the mad tums you put in an aquarium, you're never going to see it again. Um, there are strategies to try and avoid that. You know, use sand on the bottom, try and put things that don't have many crevices it can hide under. Um, but a lot of them will excavate an area of sand and go and hide up under there. And you'll just see their little barbels sticking out with their glowing eyes and they'll come out at feeding time and you won't see them for another 24 hours. Mm-hmm. Um, Funnily, the piebald, the larger one, um, we actually have those at a Fish and Wildlife Service hatchery in Tupelo, and we got them to successfully spawn this year. Um, and those things like to cuddle. <laughs> I know that sounds really weird, but like we had four or five in one tank before they got put outside into the um, raceways for spawning, and they would literally eat their fill of brine shrimp and bloodworms till their bellies were bloated and just sit on top of each other in a corner of the tank. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and, that, and that's so cool to hear that, you know, um, talking with people like Greg Steves and others that are involved with the CARES organization, that which is, um, you, you know, trying to conserve endangered species in the wild um, by having them in your, uh, well, one of the, the, the efforts is having home aquarists dedicate t- uh, a tank space to these species, um, doing their best to try to breed them, um, and then to share those species throughout uh, other aquarists, so that way if they ever go extinct in the wild, we at least have you know this kind of semi-diverse you know population scattered yeah. through various home aquariums. So so there are actual efforts for these mad toms uh, to to breed them, obviously. 
Yeah, um, and a lot of that is it's not easy to breed Mad Toms. They have a really – so the ones at the hatchery, they've, they've never done it before at the Fish and Wildlife Service hatchery. There's a, a company called Conservation Fisheries Incorporated in Tennessee that works with a ton of our non-game native fishes that are threatened and endangered, and they breed – and you name it, they've probably bred it. That is awesome. Um, I'll, I'll have to but, reach out to somebody from there. That sounds cool. I can put you in contact with awesome. somebody who works there. Um, but there's another weird thing about these mad toms is the, the strategy that we've learned for spawning them um, is – others found this first. This is with another mad tom is actually using upside-down uh, clay pots. Not the tall pots, but like the little saucer pot that you would put under your regular terracotta yep, pot. Yep. You smack a little hole in it. Um, so they can have, it's hard to smack a hole in terracotta. I broke a lot doing this. (laughs) Um, if you have the proper Dremel tool, do it with that or something else to cut terracotta, but just a big enough opening for them to get in. Um, and a male and female will actually go in there and pair up and then the male will put rocks in front of the opening, blockading themselves inside. It's just a, a cool little, like, Hey, we've got our nest, get out. Um, and, uh, yeah, so that's what they're doing at the hatchery right now. And they've had two excuse me, two uh, successful spawns so far and another pair, and this is all just in the past few months, and another pair just blocked off the clay pot when we had a cold front come through last week. So they might get a third spawn. Um, nice. And uh, currently the first spawn, they had 100% of the eggs hatched with 300 juveniles. That, that's exactly what I was going to ask is what are we looking at as far as spawn size and then survival rate? That's So 100% of 300? Yeah. Wow. So they got a lot of man pumps. Um but uh, it was kind of weird because all the fecundity counts that have been done in literature on uh, that species um, was in like the 140s, 150s. So when they all hatched, it was kind of like, whoa. Um, albeit there is some – these have been fed as much food as they want for like a full almost nine months until the spring. So they've had a lot of energy they could put towards gonadosomatic development versus just regular growth. Mm. Um so that might play into that, but I don't know how that works with how many ovaries they have per year. I, I don't know enough about development of ovaries. Um, but yeah, that was really cool to see a tank of 300 little mad toms. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah, and they're, they're probably, you know, in addition to just being stuffed with brine shrimp and bloodworms, it's probably also the, you know, there's no predators in the water, so maybe they sense that, they're able to relax a bit more, and that just helps to help them be that much more productive when it comes to, to actually spawning. I'd, I'd hope so. Um, they also do this outdoors. So they have these raceways. I think they're like 10 or 12 feet long. Um, they put gravel uh, into the raceways. They put down the uh, um, the clay pots. Um, and I think they just had – they put all 12 of the piebald mad tom in one raceway. Um, and just hope – you can't really tell the males from the females that easily. Um, the males will get some swelling on their head, um, which kind of indicates males. But, I mean, it's not like you can say that one's clearly male, that one's clearly female. And we're going to put those two – alone in a tank together and hope mm-hmm. um you just put them all in there and hope some pair up and they've luckily had three or what we th- we know at least two pairs have paired up we don't know if it's been individual pairs pairing up more than once though hmm. um so we don't have the fish individually tagged i mean it's kind of hard to they hide all the time um and it'd be a little bit hard to put a camera in on those little uh, terracotta pots and a foot of water and constantly run it to figure out who's individual 
um, spawning. And we didn't want to put any type of tags inside the fish because we don't want to mess with the reproductive stuff. Um, so it's just kind of hard to figure out who's spawning with who exactly. Mm, yeah. And it's funny, all of this effort and all of this manpower going into to spawning the species that, you know, once you reintroduce it into the wild, and I'd like you to kind of uh, d- develop out a little bit on the reintroduction strategy for these uh, these fish. But, you know, they're fish that nobody's ever really going to see. They're just going to, the moment you re-release them into the <laughs> wild, they're just going to go and hide. And the public is just never going to know. Like, they're not ever going to appreciate them unless somebody accidentally picks one up as they're, you know, using their metal detector to look for old, you know, trinkets <laughs> or whatever it is. And then they get stabbed in the hand and, you know, and they're like, ah, I just got stung. So, like, all of this effort for a fish that's just going to hide and, know, and the public is just never going to appreciate it. I'll appreciate it. I appreciate it right now. So... We've thought about that a little bit, and the best strategy I've seen is get the landowners locally involved. Have them physically involved with the release event. Even if it's, you know, there's some other, if you're releasing 20 or 30 of the Mad Toms into a stream or a darter, a minnow, whatever it is, um, have a release event. You know, if you've got a tank with um, 50 of these fish in it, you can buy some cups, fill them with the water, um, and literally have the people that are owning this land go and release the fish with you you know okay everybody release on three uh conservation fisheries incorporated does this with school groups i think um so it's one of those things you get the local community invested in the species that makes them more aware Mm -hmm. um and like we've had we have one stream in north mississippi where we're reintroducing yazoo darters an endemic darter just found in the yazoo river drainage in mississippi um and we talked to like all the landowners along this one stream. It's like a four-mile stream, but it was like 13 different people, um, and they're all aware of it now. Um, and that outreach stuff helps a lot because the one landowner we talked to, we had a really good section of stream, and he's like, he was willing to let us do some habitat rehabilitation too. Um, it helped. We helped curb some erosion issues he had, and we're also adding in canopy cover for the stream. Um, so I don't know. It's this weird uh, like meeting between landowner interests conservation interest and just everybody getting a something out of the deal um i hate to say it is a deal but that's really what it is you got to put something on the table for a landowner that's going to be good to them some of them are just they have a, a pride in the natural resource on their property um i can't tell you how many times in south dakota we shocked a stream and i talked to the farmer beforehand and said let me give you a call when we're done and i'll show you what we caught and their jaws drop their eyes go wide and they go and say go get the kids go get the kids and the kids come sprinting out to see all these cool little minnows in the stream and like in south dakota one of the questions they asked well what can i do to help and you know they just thought it was a little ditch on their property um i was like just don't mow next to it let the prairie grasses grow net it's so they're like oh it's hard to mow there anyways yeah and i was like um and it's i don't know so it's a it's go ahead no that's good stuff so um these 300 juveniles of the piebald are they immediately going to be released or are, are we just trying to build up a, a brood stock basically and then reintroduce in the next year or two or I, I shouldn't say reintroduce i just i should just say release into the wild so these ones will not be released into the wild um these are going to be part of the brood stock um we do have to account for the fact that it's 300 all from one pair um and we want to make sure the genetics are diverse. So I don't know that all if any of these fish will actually end up in the wild, but they're going to be kept. This was really some experimental propagation. Could we get it done for this species? Um, and it was wildly successful so far. Um, but we have to go through a lot of processes through the federal system, through the Fish and Wildlife Service to actually write a recovery plan for the species if we want to reintroduce into stri- streams where they're uh, extirpated from or gone from. Um, 
that's not a quick process and there's nothing wrong with it, but there's no point in going down that process if we couldn't get them to spawn. Um, so what's going to happen to all 300 of these? I wish I had the answer for that. Some of them might end up at some other aquariums as other ARC populations. Um, due to their status, they can't be kept by private uh, individuals. Um, but other aquariums uh, will inquire with and see if anybody wants them. At the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science, we'll actually take some for our displays. Um, we only have native fish in our aquarium displays at the museum. We'll try and get some of them in there. Um, but it's it's a weird thing to think about, and it's kind of it's a little morbid sometimes. But we might actually have to euthanize some of them if you know we don't have the space for them at the hatchery. There are only you know six inch mad toms, but are we going to buy nonstop bloodworms for? three years to feed these guys till they're all six inches long. Um, I don't know. It's a, it's a weird concept, but successfully we can breed them. That's what I look at as the positive part right now. Oh, wow. That's crazy. Yeah. So I, I guess on the, the reintroduction plan, um, uh, you know, getting these fish back into their, where, where they've been taken from, what is to stop these fish that are being put back into those those streams and those rivers from them just suffering the same fate, right? So I guess what are the leading what are the leading culprits of why these fish, like in particular the piebald minnow, uh, I'm sorry, the piebald uh, mad tom, why they why they're struggling? So a lot of the stuff in Mississippi has to do with a lot of habitat alteration. Um, we had a lot of channelization of streams. Um, back, I, I want to say it was in like the 40s through the 60s. Um, and when they channelized the streams, they basically gutted the habitat. Um, one of the cool things that happens naturally, though, rivers start to reclaim their course. When you channelize it, you're losing all your sinuosity. Um, with sinuosity, the turns in the river will catch different bits of woody debris and habitat. And these these mad toms specifically for piebalds, they like woody debris. They tend to hide under it. Um, within the channel that these streams are channelized in, it's starting to re- uh, I guess, reclaim its sinuosity. Um, so in some of these streams, we can actually identify ones, okay, this is a decent or good habitat stream. Um, is this a potential place we could reintroduce them? Um, so there's a lot of scouting we have to do to figure out what streams are feasible to reintroduce these within the system. And there are some streams where they historically were, where they're probably never going to be reintroduced because the habitat's just too poor. However, with the Clean Water Act and a lot of the stuff that's changed throughout the decades, the water quality itself can get a lot better in some of these systems if left alone. Um, so yeah, I guess it's a it's somewhat of a a, a crapshoot if you if the stream's going to be good enough. Um, but that's why after we reintroduce them, we would actually survey for them for past their lifespan and into the, at least a reproductive cycle. So if it's a three if it's a fish that lives for three years, we'd survey for at least four. Mm -hmm. um, does that make does that make sense? Yeah, no, definitely, definitely. And as far as the the term sinuosity, that's kind of the 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 natural S curves that a river would take, right? Kind of that back and yep. forth. Okay. Um, and it's it's really weird because when they channelize, they cause the banks of the rivers to get a lot taller. Um, so you're going to have some differences in like canopy cover. The streams are probably wider than they were historically, um, but within those channelized reaches you'll get areas where sandbars form and this downstream of the sandbars will catch woody debris and you'll get riffles and runs and pools um and that habitat diversity really does matter a lot for species that require unique habitats like these mad toms yeah um, I, I know in my region in the pacific northwest I, I don't know if it's a direct relationship to the clean water act but uh, there's so much money being so much money so much manpower being getting put back into taking rivers and streams and all these little waterways that have basically been straightened or dammed or whatever it is and returning them back to that meandering, sinewy kind of normal natural habitat. 
that is so conducive for salmon for salmon species um you know you you take one of the one of the popular trails along lake washington and you see all of that work as you're going over these culverts and sure there's still maybe a culvert there but everything around it you know they're they're trying to make it as natural and um you know as inviting of a habitat for these fish that may have actually spawned just right there next to this path naturally so you know there's there's a lot of work in this area being done in that regard and it sounds like the same thing is happening in your area and probably all throughout the country so maybe maybe it is all related to the clean water act or um, some other you know far-reaching federal uh, act yeah i I mean there's still a lot of rivers that are never going to truly recover to what they once were um i mean maybe after mankind goes extinct they will um but it's i look at it as figure out where you can find good habitat and potentially species can persist and see if we see where we can have success um through my job i can't i don't have funds to do giant restoration projects i can tell uh, companies or, or organizations areas where they should try and focus on because it might benefit as fish species um, but I as mu- I do as much as I can within the framework of what I'm given trying to figure out where we can at least get these things to persist in the wild um, and there's there's not a lot of reintroductions that get to happen there's a lot of loopholes or not loopholes um, hoops you have to jump through in order to get all the permissions and all the dots and the T's crossed and the I's dotted and all that um, but it's a, it's a slow process, but sometimes it can save a species like fungus julicia, the Baron's top minnow you were talking about. Mm-hmm. That species exists in like one small spring and it's arced at the Tennessee aquarium and the spring actually almost went dry one year. Um, so they, they literally went to the spring and they collected all they could, brought them back. And then after they got water back, they re-released a bunch. I'm pretty sure that's how it went down. Um, but like without moving things to drainages they don't belong in trying to stay within the confines of the natural distribution, it's kind of hard. Um, yeah. Yeah. So Matt, let's say, you know, this has been a fantastic episode. This has been a fantastic interview for me. Uh, let's say people out there are just fired up. You know, they, they like everything that you're saying. They're, they, you know, they hear the passion that you have for these fish and you know, the, um, everything that you're doing is what's kind of the call to action or what are some, some good resources that I can put as show links that people can click on and check out and learn more? Um, whew. uh, NAMFA links are definitely a good start. Um, if getting involved with the NAMFA organization will definitely get you into native fishes, um, from, a, a lot of guys in NAMFA are hobbyists. Um, some are biologists like myself. Um, some are just guys that just really like seeing cool native fish and they're naturalists. Um, trying to think of other cool things that could get started. Um, um, and you can always come. Sorry. You, no, no, no worries. You can always come back. That Nanfa, that's actually a great start. Yeah. And for, oh. for the record, I did reach out to Nanfa on the Facebook page to try to get somebody to come on to talk about the upcoming convention that had just passed. Nobody ever got back to me. I was trying to give you guys some free publicity, and, and plus that's because funny. I wanted to learn more about it. That might have been my fault. Oh, <laughs> is that you? Often. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, uh, <laughs> well, I got, another, well, you're on. Uh, another uh, group of organizations um, are the Fishes Councils. Um, there's a Desert Fishes Council, which is actually probably closer to you if you ever want to go see a bio, uh, like a scientific meeting. Um, in the southeast, we have the Southeastern Fishes Council. I, in the Midwest, there's the Midwest uh, Fish and Wildlife Conference. Um, it's not, uh, just a, like a, a specific to one to fish in the Midwest. I can't think of, there's another one. Oh God. There's one in the like Southwest. 
Oh God, I can't are these, remember. Are these like academic Swan. or government bodies? These are, these are academic. Um, Southwestern Association of Naturalists is another one that has a lot of non-game fish stuff in it. Um, I go to Southeastern Fishes Council every year. Um, I'm the secretary for the society. Um, but it's a lot of cool studies on the ecology of these fishes, on the biology, the status, sometimes the relationships genetically, um, descriptions of new species. If that's if you're just interested in a meeting um, to see what's there and what kind of things go on in academia, um, but also what state agencies and federal agencies are doing, those meetings are awesome. Um, a lot of times it's success stories. Sometimes it's, oh, God, this fish is left in one stream. We really need to act quickly. Um but their presentations are what everybody's doing. Um, nice. A lot of that is, you know, tax dollars and university dollars going towards the conservation of our natives. No, that's good stuff, Matt. I'll, I'll make sure I, uh, I'll look up and find some links for those fishes councils, and I'll put the uh, the NAMFA Facebook group, and if there's also a NAMFA just normal webpage, I'll link those as well. Uh, Matt, this has been a fantastic conversation. I've had a lot of fun learning about everything from backpack fishing to Jack Dempsey's in South Dakota and all about the <laughs> Mad Tom. This has been awesome. Uh, I definitely think I'm going to have to have you on again because I know there's there's just a lot I want to unpack about gars and a lot of the other native species that we have that are really, really cool fish that, you know, again, being selfish, that I want to learn more about. And I feel like other people out there probably do too, or you they just don't know it yet. <laughs> So, Matt, thank you very much for coming on, man. Uh, I hope you have a great rest of your evening. Thanks. It was a pleasure, Andy.